Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Our reading today comes from John chapter 3, verses 35 to 36, chapter 4, verses 4 to 30, and verse 39. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, 
Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. The word of the Lord. So, the very beginning of this passage begins with one of the most controversial teachings of the entire Bible. Uh, what is it? If we can put this back up, verse 35, chapter 3, verse 35, says this, that the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This notion of God being a God of wrath uh, and the reality that we are under that wrath unless we believe in Jesus the Son, the one who has all things in his hands. Uh, what are we to make of really difficult passages and concepts like that, especially in a time when that whole notion of a God full of wrath and judgment seems completely antithetical to much of our conceptions of a God of love and compassion? Uh, well, this whole notion, these concepts of judgment and wrath, I realize for, for many, uh, can leave us feeling um, uh, feelings of fear, dread, but even disdain. Right? This whole notion of Christians believing in a God of great wrath and judgment brings disdain for some. But I wonder if it's possible that we might actually be able to understand these ideas of judgment and wrath, not with fear, dread, and disdain, but to experience them with hope and joy instead. And I think this passage, this story that we just heard read, actually provides us opportunity to see judgment with hope and to see it with joy. Today we continue uh, our series, A Public Faith, in which we've been examining the, uh, the claims of the Christian faith by looking at the book of John. Uh, and today we come to another very famous story about Jesus meeting a woman at a well. And I hope that in this story, we can begin considering that the person of Jesus and the work that he comes to accomplish allows us to see even the most difficult teachings of the Bible through when uh, seen through the lens of Jesus, actually are wonderful, life-giving, joy-producing, hope-filled teachings, even the ideas of judgment. So to see what I mean, let's consider that Jesus first is the one who sees us, Jesus is the one who meets us, and then finally, Jesus is the one who thirsts for us, right? So first, the one who sees us. All right, so let's begin. Let's get a sense with, of what's happening in the main story within our passage. Jesus, he's making his way through Samaria. Uh, some of you may know this, but quickly, the context of Samaria is actually incredibly important for us to recognize. Uh, specifically, that there were very real tensions that existed between Israel and Samaria. The backstory is essentially that Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel after the nations had split. And over the course of the centuries, uh, though the Samaritans would, uh, they would see themselves uh, very much as like the true keepers of the Torah and the descendants of Israel. This was, this was a bit of a tension point. They saw themselves as the true keepers. Uh, they had even built a temple 
and rejected the legitimacy of the temple that was in Jerusalem, rejected the uh, legitimacy of the Levitical priesthood in Jerusalem. And so as you could imagine, this created some very real tensions with the Jewish people in Jerusalem. So much so that the, uh, the Jewish people destroyed the Samaritan temple about 130 years or so before Jesus. But nonetheless, though the temple was destroyed, the Samaritans still would worship at the location where the temple once stood. And then on top of all of that religious tension, if that was not enough, they also, uh, to the, by Jewish standards, were not of pure racial heritage. Over the centuries, they had intermixed with Jagan, uh, Jagan, pagan Gentiles. See what I did there? Gentile pagans is the word I was looking for, uh, which meant that they were not pure. And so for many of the, much of the Jewish people at the time, that meant that they would not at all be considered true worshipers of God. That the Jewish people of Jesus's day hated Samaritans, viewed them very much as less than, and refused to interact with them. So with that context in mind, Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and he comes across a Samaritan woman at a well. And it tells us that this happened at about, quote, noon. Now, several very important details to point out there. First, we got to note that Jesus here engages with a woman, which in and of itself was pretty interesting. Jesus talking to a lone woman would have certainly have been viewed as problematic, but even more so, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. In fact, it is so strange that if you look at verse 9 in chapter 4, It says that the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Even for this woman, this was very strange. What is this Jewish man talking to me for? But what we see in Jesus time and time again is that he is one who always sees those that the world might otherwise overlook. He pursues those who are often forgotten, and he lifts up those uh, who everyone else might have beaten down. And this woman certainly would have fit that bill. Additionally, nearly all biblical commentators also point out the significance of the fact that John notes that this interaction happened at noon. Why is that important? Well, noon in this region, in this part of the world, was a terrible time of day to do something as physically taxing as gathering water. It would have been terribly hot midday. And yet, nonetheless, here is this woman at a well gathering water. Why? Why is that a significant detail? Well, as you can imagine, these wells were central points of the community. It's often where people would gather. Uh, Many different people would come, and there'd be an intersection of the entire community. And if one came early in the morning or later in the evening when it was cooler, there most certainly would have been many other people present at the well. But if you wanted to avoid seeing other people, if you wanted to avoid interactions, if you wanted to even avoid potential harm that could come from those interactions, you would go at the one time of day that no one in their right mind would go. Noon. This was the hottest part of the day. And we find out pretty quickly that this is likely exactly what's going on 
as we begin to see this interaction that Jesus has with the woman. Because Jesus, as he begins to speak with her and they begin talking about water, Jesus very quickly jumps into the reason for their interaction. And in verse 9, uh, 9 and 10, it says this. Uh, again, the woman says, How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Verse 10 goes on. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked, you would have asked him, at, I'm sorry, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And then he goes on in verse 3. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. To which she then replies in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And then at this point, right, this is where we get to the real crux of understanding who this woman is. Jesus hones in on the very real depth of brokenness that is in this woman. Right? This water was just a way in to begin really addressing what was going, inside, going on inside of her. Because what he does next is he asks her to go get her husband, to which she says she does not have one, to which he then responds, you are right to say that you have no husband. Verse 18 then says, the fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. There is really what Jesus is getting at. He's addressing something in this woman. Now, what exactly is he addressing? Well, there's actually some um, debates happening like right now in real time around the nature of this woman's many marriages. Uh, the, the traditional uh, interpretation is that this is essentially sexual immorality with this woman. Uh, however, there are others who have begun uh, arguing, actually, it shouldn't be begun, it's been an ongoing debate, but it's become a very hot topic recently, uh, have started arguing that the reason she was married and divorced so many times uh, might actually not have been like a sexual immorality thing, but rather it might have been that her husbands have died, or that maybe she was barren, and so her husbands kept divorcing her because she could not bear children, which for some, at that time would not have been a crazy thing to have happened. Um, I actually don't want to get too much into that, that debate. I just want to note that so that you are aware that that debate is happening. And for what it's worth, in case you're interested, I do think actually the traditional view takes more seriously all the factors that we are presented here, uh, as opposed to contemporary guesses that are kind of based on possibilities uh, on things that aren't really presented here. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But what I want us to see is that whatever the case might be, there's almost no scenario that we could imagine where one has been married five different times and everything is okay. There's something going on in the life of this woman that is leading to some kind of brokenness that exists. This woman obviously, regardless of the circumstances, would have carried great shame. And as a result, back to what we were saying a minute ago, is absolutely avoiding people, avoiding being seen. And it's at that moment that Jesus decides to pursue her. Something I actually did not notice until Will was just reading that passage. The other thing, look at verse 8 that notes something, is that this interaction didn't actually happen until the disciples of Jesus were also gone. They had gone to find food. Jesus even waited for his disciples to be gone so that it was just him and this woman. It's interesting to me. It just struck me as we were uh, reading through that again. But what's interesting is, so now Jesus is having this interaction with this woman, one-on-one. -on -one. 
But after Jesus asks about her husband, she does something really odd. She makes a very odd pivot in the conversation. Look at verse 19. She says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you, Jews, claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. What is that? Jesus just revealed something very personal about her, and her response is that she changes the subject to talk about the history of Israel and Samaria and temple worship. Again, biblical commentators note that this was so random. There's no reason for her to bring this up right now, and that it's clear she's trying to change the subject. She just does not want to talk about what is happening in her personal life. But Jesus knows this woman. He knows what she's carrying around, the great shame that she is carrying around, the one who's obviously longing for something, and as a result of the brokenness within her, needs what he calls this living water that's going to satisfy this longing that is pervasive in her life. And so Jesus comes and he meets her on her turf to extend that fulfillment to her, which is actually interesting, really interesting, given last week's passage, if you remember. Last week, we looked at John 3, where Jesus has a a similar kind of interaction, one-on-one interaction with Nicodemus. Except what happened in that story in John 3 is that uh, Nicodemus, he went to Jesus. But here what we're seeing is that Jesus goes to her. Which brings me to the significance of our second point, which is that Jesus is the one who meets us. First, let me, before I get into what I mean by that, um, I want to show you the significance uh, of this. But before I do, let me note something. Uh, For those of you that are at all interested in how the sausage gets made around here uh, with these sermon series, um, I usually develop these sermon series like months out. So I know far ahead of time what we're going to actually be studying. And as we develop these series, they usually are uh, as a result of ongoing conversations that I'll have with my wife or Pastor Abe or the elders, just talking about the various things that maybe we should focus on. But then I take some extended time to think and to pray and to think about each series that we do. And I'll usually map them out, uh, a couple of series out ahead of time. Uh, And if you notice, we almost always preach and teach through books of the Bible, as opposed to just doing topical sermons that kind of draw from everywhere. Uh, And there's a reason for that. That's on purpose. Uh, We believe that though topical sermons can be done well, as a normal practice, we believe that God gives us what he gives us in his word with uh, intention. And so it's important for us that as we're working through the Bible, that we're allowing God to reveal to us what he desires to reveal to us in the way that he desires to reveal it. Uh, And so we take very seriously going through books of the Bible, uh, understanding the entire stream of thought that exists within within a book, uh, the different narrative arcs, the particular teachings uh, that could very easily be missed or maybe even misinterpreted uh, if if they aren't carefully studied. And while it would be uh, really challenging for us um, to go verse by verse by verse, which some churches do, and I think that's great, we decide to take these kind of broad strokes to ensure that we're hitting all the major important themes throughout uh, a book. Uh, And again, we usually lay that out months ahead of time. All that said, there's a reason why I'm telling you all that, that the first two verses, where we started, were actually not part of my original outlines. 
Uh, the way it was originally written is that we were going to look at John 3 last week with Nicodemus, and, uh, which ended in verse 18. And then we were just going to skip right ahead to John 4 with a Samaritan woman at the well. And I almost left out that section about wrath and judgment because I was thinking, oh, you know, we get to that every now and then. There's other things that we're trying to get to. Um, so I can skip over this section and just jump right into Jesus' interaction with the woman. But the beauty of teaching through and for me studying through, continually studying through exactly what God gives to us in the way that he gives to us means that we're forced to pay attention to the way he gives it. And when we pay attention to the way he gives it, it actually provides enormous clarity, I think, for some of the more difficult topics. Okay, that was a lot of preface to say. I note all this because I think that the second half of John 3 and all of its focus on purification and wrath and judgment actually have something to do with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. And I think, which sandwiched that section, by the way, I think that they are both examples of those who were under the judgment and wrath of God, but they are two very different people with very different lives and for whom Jesus showed up in very different ways. And recognizing that fact, I think, back to what we were saying at the the very beginning, actually provides insight into the wonderfully life-giving, joy-producing, hope-filled teachings of the Bible. And I almost missed it until this past week as I was studying through these passages. Think about this. Think about it this way. All right, remember um, Nicodemus. We talked about him last week. Nicodemus, he was this proud, learned, respected, and righteous man who came to Jesus in the middle of the night in order to protect himself. Remember that he was a ruler of the Jewish people, a religious expert who should have had all the answers. And so there was this humbling that Nicodemus needed because he assumed he knew all that he needed to know. There was a humbling that actually revealed that he didn't know everything that he needed to know, that he was not as learned as he likely assumed, nor was he uh, as righteous as he assumed. And after Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you remember, Jesus tells him that you must be born again. Listen to how Jesus confronts him on, uh, in this, uh, back in chapter 3, which I think I put up, uh, up there for you. In verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9, this is Jesus, what Jesus says. So Nicodemus says, how can this be? You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Basically, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, seriously, you don't understand what I'm saying to you? Are you not supposed to be this great teacher of the law? I mean, Jesus is confronting Nicodemus by arguing that Nicodemus needs something absolutely impossible for him to attain, which is a new birth. Jesus knew that Nicodemus needed that humbling experience of realizing his weakness and his arrogance and his ignorance. But then we get to chapter four, and you have the Samaritan woman a woman that was completely different than Nicodemus. She was not a proud, learned, respected, righteous woman. She was a shame-filled, viewed as less than, marginalized, and likely forgotten woman. 
She came to the well, not in the middle of the night, but she comes in the middle of the day to avoid ridicule. But she does so for very different reasons. And because of this, we know she's not going to go seek out Jesus the way that Nicodemus did. And so instead of her needing to seek him out, Jesus goes to her at her place of great shame, the well. This woman did not need a humbling. She did not need to be told about how ignorant she was, how she doesn't understand the great things of God. She didn't need that kind of confrontation with Jesus. This woman didn't need to be humbled. Instead, what this woman needed was an experience of kindness, compassion, and even gentleness. And though Jesus confronts her, he does so in a way that draws her out so that he might extend to her what he calls this living water that will eternally satisfy her thirst. Now, let me put all this together. We cannot miss John 3, 36. That tells us that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. We cannot miss. The Bible is abundantly clear about the judgment and the wrath of God. But that being the case, it is also true that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, meets us in the ways that we need him to meet us, in the very places that we need him to meet us. Both the proud Nicodemus and the shame-filled Samaritan woman needed to believe in the Son in order to experience eternal life. But the way that message was communicated was tailored to their exact needs. God meeting us where we are, speaking life in the way that we need to hear it. And so for all of us, the question for us today is first, how do we need to hear about the belief, this belief in the Son? That holds eternal life. You know, for some of us here, we are more like Nicodemus, and we are in desperate need of a humbling experience because of our pride. We possess in assuming that we know all that we need to know. And in that sense, Jesus confronts us pretty intensely to show us you don't have what you need, you don't know what you need to know, you need something that is completely outside of anything you can attain. But some of us here, maybe we don't need that kind of confrontation. We're well aware of our ignorance. We're well aware of our brokenness. And Jesus confronting us in that wouldn't actually draw us out toward him. Instead, what we need is that pursuing gentleness that reminds us of the one that can fulfill our deepest longings. The message of the gospel is one of hope that Jesus meets us where we are in order to extend to us eternal life. And on the one hand, the God of judgment can be challenging, believing in a God of judgment can be challenging for us until we begin to see him as a pursuing God meeting us in our specific, specific and exact needs. And when we see him in that way, when we see Jesus as this pursuing one meeting us where we are, What we begin to see is that this notion of wrath and judgment, though yes, scary and though overwhelming to think about, we begin to see a love extended to us because we know the extent to which Jesus is committed to meeting us where we are so that we might have that eternal life. 
And the last thing that we see here is not just that Jesus is the one who, who meets us, but also see how he goes about meeting us and what exactly it is that he extends for us, which brings us finally to considering that Jesus is the one who thirsts for us. Uh, the central gift, right, going back to Nicodemus quickly, the central gift extended to Nicodemus, if you remember, was a promise of eternal life to those who believe in the Son, the promise that they shall never die. And Jesus proves that he holds the power of this new life in the power of his resurrection. Right? We know that though he died, he was raised to life and extends that resurrection life, that resurrection power, that eternal life to all those who believe. But the central gift that's extended to the Samaritan woman is a little different, actually. It's related, but a little bit different. Because to the Samaritan woman, Jesus extends this living water. Water that if one drinks it means that they will never thirst again. See, the, the eternal life promised to Nicodemus is a life that is completely different than the life that we know it now. Frankly, I don't want an eternity of what we are living right now. That's not that appealing to me. But what we see is that this eternal life that's offered to Nicodemus is not an eternal life of what we're experiencing now. It's an eternal life of what is presented to the Samaritan woman, one of complete fulfillment, satisfaction, and rest. A satisfaction offered to this Samaritan woman. The, the, the two pictures of eternity is actually giving us the fullest picture of what Jesus extends to us. Eternal life and an eternal life of complete satisfaction where our thirsts are fully and completely satiated. And what's interesting is that Jesus, he took upon himself uh, death in order to accomplish for us eternal life. Right? So that gets us this eternal life. But what's interesting is that Jesus not only takes upon himself the death that presents to us this eternal life, he also takes on the thirst so that when he extends to us this water, it truly is satisfying. Let me show you what I mean. In John 19, you have Jesus. He's suffering on the cross. And in his anguish, he knows that his time is about to come. He knows that he's about to die. But in this anguish, he utters a few words. A few words that are striking when you think about what he's extending to the Samaritan woman. And in verse 28, he says, or it says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here's what blows me away by that. On the cross, Jesus takes upon himself not just the death that would eventually lead to the eternal life, but he also takes on our thirst. He takes on our longing for satisfaction and fulfillment so that we might see the fullest commitment of God to extend to us eternal life a life of complete satisfaction as we trust in Jesus. And so, with all of that, some of us here, as I said, we're Nicodemuses. We are proud, learned, assuming that we know everything that we need to know. And the message of Jesus to you is to believe 
in the Son and experience eternal life by recognizing your need for rebirth that comes by the power of God to those who believe. But some of us here are the Samaritan woman, shame-filled, broken, desperately thirsting and longing for love, affection, and grace. The message to you is to believe in the Son and experience eternal life by finding our comfort, satisfaction, and fulfillment in the one who took our thirst upon himself so that we might be able to experience not just eternal life, but eternal, satisfying, living water. And the last thing I would just say about this is that we've been in this public faith season. And as a reminder, this public faith season has been uh, an emphasis of what does it mean for Christians to live their faith uh, publicly in the world, in the various spheres that God places us. And I find this to be particularly instructive for us, this entire, uh, you know, chapter three and four. Because Christians, as we exist in the world and as we seek to make our faith public, I wonder if we have the same heart as Jesus when we talk to others, as we share our faith. Are we conscious of whether or not we are talking to a Nicodemus or a Samaritan woman? Because one of the breakdowns that often happens when people try to share their faith is that they're talking to a Nicodemus, but they talk to the Nicodemus like a Samaritan woman. Or they're talking to a Samaritan woman and they're trying to humble the Samaritan woman like they would a Nicodemus. And our inability to be conscious as the Spirit leads of paying attention to the who we're talking to can sometimes undermine the very faith that we're trying to explain and present. And so my hope, my prayer would be that the Spirit of God, as we are paying attention, being conscious of who we're talking to, would give us the right words, the right approach, the right ability to say what needs to be said. Sometimes that confronting, you don't know what you need, you need a humbling experience, or to just be that gentle, kind person that draws someone out, both of whom need the hope of Jesus. But like Jesus, that hope can be presented in a different way that might draw people out, that they might believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're a God who knows us, and you know us in ways that often we don't even know ourselves. And because you love us and because of your grace, though we are all people that need to trust and believe in Jesus that we might experience eternal life, we are also different people who have different experiences. And so because you love us, you meet us in those experiences. You meet us in the uniqueness of who we are so that we might hear a word of hope in a way that is understood and resonates God, we consider that to be a great compassion, a great grace, and we thank you for it. For those of us here that have trusted in Jesus, I pray that we would think back to the ways that we first experienced that uh, eternal life presented, and that it would encourage us that you met us where we needed you to meet us. For those of us here that don't know Jesus, Spirit of God, I pray that you would meet them now in the ways that they need to be met, speaking words of life that they need to hear. And as we go out into this world, I pray that you'd, by your Spirit, make us wise people who are able to love and care for people the way that Jesus did, conscious of who we're talking to. 
We ask all this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.